Well, let's turn together now to 1 Peter chapter 2. What a wonderful God that we just celebrated at the Lord's table. And now, how wonderful. Let's, let's hear what he has to say in the scriptures. Let's come with eagerness to the word of God as always. Today, we're going to talk about having a winning walk. Over and over again in this letter that we call 1 Peter, God's been communicating to us that we have a very different identity on the earth and a very different mission on this earth. You and I, who were once far off in our sins, alienated from this wonderful, holy God, that's all been changed now. Now we are the children of God at that high price we just celebrated that God was willing to pay for us. Now we were, now who were alienated, now the very children of God because of Jesus. And now we have a new identity. We are elect exiles on the earth. You remember that? We, are, as we saw last time, are living stones. As we've come to faith, we're like stone by stone, a part now of a living temple, the body of Christ here in the new covenant. Last time we also saw a part of our identity, we should see ourselves as a royal priesthood. And then there was this great statement last time we saw in our text that we are a chosen race. And don't you love it? Here we are, one people, eventually from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the people of God. So whether you're from an Asian heritage or African heritage or you're from, you have a South American heritage or European, in Christ, one people, the people of God. So this is our new identity. And because we have a new identity, we must now have a corresponding new lifestyle and a new mission that goes along with that identity. And that's where our text is about today. Look with me now, just two verses, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice with me first, Peter here addresses these brothers and sisters in Christ in a very affectionate way. He calls them beloved. In fact, there really isn't an English word that could convey the depth of the word that's used in the original language. The original word is agapatoi. That word agape right in there, basically dear loved ones, dear people that I love, beloved. But then he also calls them exiles and sojourners. And it harkens us back to chapter one, verse one, right at the very beginning of this letter, he addresses them as elect exiles. He keeps calling them that and us that as we apply this to ourselves. So, so we are God's chosen people on the earth. By calling us exiles again and sojourners here, he's letting us know again, this earth is not your home. That we are citizens of another kingdom, a better kingdom, an eternal kingdom. That's who we belong to. So we are temporarily here on the earth. We're just passing through this earth and we're passing through with an assignment from God. So you must know this about yourself. It keeps being repeated to us in the pages of scripture here that we have a status as exiles on the earth, that you don't fit in to the world and its values, that the new earth will be your home, but not the earth in its present condition with its present leaders. But even in this temporary home, as we're passing through, we are to rise above and live a walk that we would call a winning walk. 
The first thing we'll see here is Peter draws our attention to it is that you and I should win the war within. You and I, if we're going to live a winning walk, should win the war within. Peter tells you there's a war going on inside of you. Hear it again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He says to abstain. That word means to refrain to keep yourself from, to keep at a distance from something here. Now, from what are we to abstain? Peter mentions certain passions here. And that word passion means, as we know, strong desires, longing. And just like our English use of that word, it depends on context whether that passion is something that's very good or something that's very bad. So here, Peter says you need to abstain from not just, not all passions, but you should abstain from what he calls passions of the flesh. In other words, he's calling out fleshly or immoral desires. So again, not all passions bad. If you have a passion for God, that is a right passion. You would use the very same word passion in a wrong sense. Avoid that passion for God. Better have that. In fact, right now, examine your heart. Do you have no passion for God? Do you not love him? The scripture says you, you need to love him passionately. Love the Lord, your God. What do you say? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's passion. We must have it. We are to have a wholehearted praise for the Lord. We're also to have a passion, a longing for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul, you would use the same word when he referred to missing other Christians. He'd plant a church. He'd move on. He'd write back to them. He said, I, I long for you. I, I have a passion to be with you again. That's a good passion. And even husbands and wives, when we talk about the physical dynamic of their relationship, to have passion for one another, that's holy. And if you don't know that, 1 Corinthians 7, read the book of Proverbs, read Song of, read Song of Solomon, or Genesis chapter 1. So that's good, holy. But Peter calls out something that he calls passions of the flesh. The NASB translates it, fleshly lusts. Good translation. The NIV also has a good translation of this sinful desires. So understand God calls out some of our desires as illegitimate. From these, we are to abstain. Now in our culture, the idea of abstaining from anything is absolutely rejected. Our culture abstains from the word abstain. It's the one thing that they abstain from. To many, the idea of abstaining from sexual sin is an unrealistic joke. And that's like a punchline for joke. Oh, you, you, mean, you mean you're supposed to control these desires and not, not follow your desires? What a, what a joke. Beyond that, more than a joke, our culture will tell you to not give in to your sexual desires. They say that's harmful. You're not being true to you. But the Bible says the exact opposite. God says the opposite. Do you want to do danger to yourself? Then just follow all of your impulses. There's a war on your own soul that you're contributing to your own defeat. Here again, the word of God, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So do you know this, that some of your desires are sinful? In fact, it might be some of the strongest desires in your life right now that you're battling. I hope you're battling that God calls those sinful. 
Now, somebody might say, that's unfair. Why would God let me have such strong desires if, if I can't legitimately express those? These feel like a part of me. No, these desires are me. But the scripture would counter to you. No, that's not you. That's not you. You have a sin nature. You are being tempted. And this is a result of the fall. This is true of all of us. It's not just you. All of us have plenty of desires that we are not to act on. That when we have that desire well up in us, in our hearts or in our minds, in our bodies, we're to recognize that and we go, all right, that's, that's not good. That's not holy. I dare not act on that. I dare not entertain that in my head. So we all have sinful impulses, things like selfishness. We didn't ask for that. We're just selfish or pride or greed or anger or lust. So just because you and I feel something, just because we feel something sometimes very strongly does not mean it's legitimate. Doesn't mean that we're to act on it, that God gave that to us and we should just go with it. So here's a question. Who decides which of our impulses, which of our desires are good or bad? Who, who decides that? Easy answer. God decides that. God is your creator. He has told you these things are good. These things are not good. These things are of the spirit. These things are of your flesh. Abstain from these things of the flesh and absolutely have these passions for the things of the spirit. So our creator decides which passions we are to follow. And God has spoken, aren't you glad, very clearly. There's no ambiguity whatsoever in the scripture about what passions we are to follow and which ones we are to abstain from. Now we know this, we live in an age that's celebrating and promoting very much of the things that God said, you should actually abstain from that. But the culture celebrating and promoting. We are in an age of a sexual revolution, and that word is not too strong in these days, rejecting nearly all the boundaries on sexual expression imaginable. And we're living in a month where we're told, be proud of some of the very desires God said, no, you actually should abstain from that. So, so what's the word of God say on this? Abstain from these passions of the flesh. So let's give some examples of what that looks like. So you might be a married person, you've met somebody, and you're thinking about, man, I, I really long for this other person. What should I do? Once again, the scripture is very clear. You abstain from that passion of the flesh. But, but you don't understand, pastor, these feelings are strong. I've never felt this way about anybody. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. It doesn't matter the intensity of the feeling that you have. It would be ungodly. It would be an evil to betray your spouse and to go with somebody else. By the way, it's not just the act of adultery that God calls sinful, it's the lust itself. Do you remember the words of Jesus? Couldn't be more clear. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus goes on and says this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you have the impulse toward adultery that's an evil impulse. God calls it out. You can't rationalize it. It's evil. Just the thought. You should, be, you should be repenting of the thought as soon as it comes into your mind. What about those who are not yet married? They're dating. They love each other. They're attracted to each other. What's the word there? Because these are strong, these are strong attractions. What should we do with that? Listen, you should abstain for the passions of the flesh. And so, so when I meet with young couples planning to get married... I often remind them of this right now, when it comes to the physical dynamic, the physical aspect of your relationship, you are sitting at a red light wedding night. 
green light. But right now you are at a, you are at a red light. In fact, I, I give this advice to anybody who's dating or you think one day I'm going to date, what's that going to look like? I would say this, never be totally alone with the person you're dating. You say, I'm a strong Christian. You are a strong Christian. Praise God for that. But these passions, these desires are super strong. And you are capable of these strong, strong desires. And if you put yourself alone, alone with somebody that you care deeply about and that you're attracted to, you're playing with fire. And so, yeah, date alone. Go to Panera alone. Go to Crump Park and walk around together. Go to a movie if you can find a decent movie. Hang out together with other people around, it's, it's dangerous because these are strong passions, but because they're strong doesn't mean that yeah, I should just give in to these. God wouldn't let me feel this way if I were to act on it. What's he say here? Abstain from these passions of the flesh. But then comes the question, what about a person who's attracted to somebody of the same sex? Is there some special word for them? No special word. Same as for the rest of us. Abstain from these passions of the flesh. Not all of our desires are in bounds and God is the one who has spoken to us and he couldn't be more clear on this topic as well. So Romans chapter one, if you're unclear at all of what God has said on this, Romans one, please read it. In first Corinthians chapter six, very clear. So I'll state the obvious pride is the opposite of what God calls for in his word. Pride is the opposite of abstaining from these things. God could not be more clear. So I hope you feel the tension just in this one verse of what the world is demanding of you and what God is demanding of you. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So let's apply this to our hearts. We've already seen in this book that we're to be holy as God is holy. We've already seen that we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And therefore, because of this new identity, this new standing in Christ, we cannot dare leave in our hearts anything of hatred or any passion of greed or pride or any kind of lust. And then we ask, well, why not? Why can't I give in? Because there's a war here. Peter communicates as the spirit guides him, there is danger. The danger is not that I'm going to harm myself if I don't follow my lust. The danger is if you give in to this lust, understand sin is harmful to you and to me. Here's what sin does. Sin deadens you. Sin hardens you against God. Sin will blind you. Sin distorts our eyes and quenches the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian and you're letting yourself veer into the sexual sin, this steals your joy. It robs you of peace. This is bad for your mental health. Like, why don't I have peace? Well, you're, you're going in a direction where, where the Holy Spirit is, is warning you against. He's, he's going to make you miserable until you repent. Now, do you remember David and his sin with Bathsheba? Here he was, king, already married, sees a married woman that he finds attractive and summons for her. And he commits adultery with her. What a, what a shameful, tragic sin in his life. And it was very costly to him. I want us to hear that. Very costly. It broke his fellowship with God set in motion a cover-up of that sin with other sin, the, the murder of this woman's husband. But when confronted by the prophet Nathan, David did not respond with pride about what he had done. He did the opposite. You should read sometimes Psalm 51 to see what do you do if you find yourself in sin? What's the right heart? You bring what David called a broken and contrite heart. That's how we respond when we see ourselves in sin. Like, how could I have done that? How could I have thought about that? 
Why didn't I do what I should have done? When you're, when you're filled with that, what do you bring to God? Not pride. You bring a broken and contrite heart to a merciful God who will forgive you if you come in humility and brokenness like that. So here's good news. There, there is forgiveness if you find yourself in these sins. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 6, rather, verses 9 through 11. Listen to this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's, that's sobering. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the good news. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. There's good news. That's why we're celebrating. We're humbled. We've all sinned, but we have a savior when we come humbly to him with a broken heart in repentance. Ah, we find forgiveness. We find our shame removed from us. Now, how do we apply this passage? How do we abstain from these strong desires in us? Several suggestions for us this morning. First of all, maintain your passion for God. If you're going to abstain from these strong passions that wage war within you, you must have a greater passion, a passion for God. So stoke the flame of your fire for God. Make sure you're spending time with him. Get alone with him in the word. Delight yourself in him. And then walk with him in the day. Feed your mind on him. Stay ablaze in your love for him. So maintain your passion for God. Secondly, agree with God. So now begin to say, in light of the scripture, if I have desires that God calls illegitimate sinful, then I agree with God. I'm not going to accommodate that. I'm not going to make a home for that in my heart and my mind. I agree with God. So maintain your passion for God. Agree with God about what he says about these passions. Third, flee immorality. Flee immorality. So immediately reject sinful thoughts when they come into your mind. So a thought comes in, you didn't ask for that thought, but immediately, what are you going to do with it? Scripture says, flee from it. So practically in your mind, like I'm going to turn away from that. Going to have to replace that thought with something else because that's not legitimate. Bounce your eyes away from sensual image. Maybe you're minding your own business. You're watching TV or you're online and, and something comes up. Some image comes across the screen. Look away from that. Flee from immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I love James 4.7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so here's the promise. Some strong temptation comes into your heart or into your mind. You can resist the devil. He will flee from you as you flee from immorality. Fifth, or fourth rather, put defenses in place. So you're going to be avoiding thoughts that are inappropriate. You're going to be avoiding media that would stir up these wrong types of desires. You're going to guard your thoughts. You're going to guard your eyes. And so maybe practical moves like this where you think, I, I can't allow in my life things are going to stir up these illegitimate passions that come so naturally to me. And so maybe you want to have some accountability software on your devices Something like covenant eyes, where you have a brother or sister checking in on what you're viewing online. Just another way of helping you win in this area of your life because it's a war. Or maybe you'll have somebody just set up the parental controls on your devices. 
So where somebody just blocks those things so that in a moment of weakness, you won't be able to go over and see some things that maybe your sinful flesh would at sometimes crave. So we are to abstain to guard our own souls and we are to abstain from these things in order to maintain our gospel testimony. So we're talking about having a winning walk, win the war within in the power of God. Secondly, seek to win the world to Jesus. Win the war within and seek to win the world to Jesus. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we've already been told, be holy in all your conduct. Chapter 1, verse 15. We've been told to be holy because God is holy. This is a family trait that we are called to. And understand this, holiness is central to our worship. But holiness is also central to our witness. So we have a desire to win our unsaved family members and neighbors and classmates to the Lord. And to do that, we do first have to win this war within. That we might be authentic Christians. That we would live and walk an honorable, excellent way among them. To be used by God as credible witnesses in their lives. Again, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable and catch it. So that, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, I do notice this in the text. Peter doesn't indicate that you might be slandered. He says you will be. It's not if, when they speak against you as evildoers. So we're not told in the scriptures, if you're sweet enough and you say it perfectly, that they will always love you and appreciate the things you're saying, even the things they disagree with. That's not what we're told. There will be those who will slander you. They'll even call you, who's now humble in your sin and you've come to Jesus for forgiveness, they'll call you now an evildoer. You ever had that happen to you? I've had that experience where evildoers are calling you an evildoer. It's bewildering. You don't know what to do with it. Now, how were believers in the first century slandered because of their relationship with Jesus? Well, interesting. Some of the things that unbelievers said about Christians in the first century. First century Christians were called atheists. Can you imagine? Like, how atheists? Well, because they were no longer idolaters. When you don't have those physical images around your unsaved neighbors in that first century Roman context, like, well, you're a bunch of atheists now. No, no, my God is just not contained in some kind of stone or piece of metal. So that was slander against them. Another way first century Christians were slandered, they were called cannibals. Cannibals, because of the very thing we just celebrated. When they would hear this talk about eating the flesh, and drinking the blood, well, you people are despicable. You are cannibals. That's what you're doing in your secret meetings. It wasn't true. It was slander. Sometimes the first century Christians were told that they were not patriotic. You're not loyal to the empire. You won't, you won't say Caesar is Lord like the rest of us. And the Christians are like, I can't give you that. I cannot do that. Jesus alone is Lord. And then sometimes it was simply this. You Christians, you're dangerous. Because you won't worship the idols, because you won't appease the gods, our crops are in danger. Our, our national security is in danger because you won't appease the gods who help us and who prosper us. Now, how are we slandered today in this century? Well, we know it's very predictable. It's almost tiring that if you are a biblical Christian seeking in humility to walk as a biblical disciple, you and I are typically called bigots and haters. But it's not true. It's slander and we shouldn't be surprised in it. So we speak the truth in love regardless of the sin. We, we preach that there's salvation to anyone who would turn from any sin and come to Christ. So we're not singling anybody out. 
we have the same message for everybody. That the good news is there's forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ as all of us turn from all of our sins and put our hope in Jesus Christ. So our message is this, acknowledge your sin. Whatever sin you have in your life, confess that to the Lord and run to him for relief. Be saved, be born again. So the slander comes though, and it's unkind. The slander comes and it's unfair, it's dishonest, it is predictable, but isn't it unpleasant? When the world attacks now, they can attack with the full force of the media, with a second wave that's sometimes even more painful, with social media, and it feels like a firestorm coming inbound. And you can't speak into it because nobody's in a listening mode when they're coming for you. It's just raging. And, and so what do you do? Even so, you just hold steady, unashamed of your Savior. You hold on to him, persisting in your confidence in the word of God and showing by our lives that the slander is not true. And that's what Peter says. Even when they slander you, make them see your good deeds so they know that what they're saying eventually Maybe they'll notice that it's not true. So out of love for our neighbors, let's keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. How do I do that? Let's walk the walk. Let's be consistent in our growing love for God and our growing love for others. Let's shine the light of Jesus from our new hearts, a heart of now compassion, a heart of love, and yes, a heart now of sexual purity. Let's maintain at all times humility so that we're never giving off that we think we're better than somebody else. No, we're just saved. We've been rescued from all this sin. And let's pray for those who slander us. Our greatest prayer should be that some of our persecutors would come to Jesus and become our brothers and sisters. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So don't hide in these days. Don't be timid. Engage the world. Let the Gentiles see what Jesus has done in your life. As we think about this slander that comes inbound, it, as I pondered that, I thought, yeah, I think this is the normal path to Jesus. Maybe it always has been, but it certainly will be in these days. When, when we encounter our friends, they're in unbelief. And as they notice Jesus in us, the next thing that might come, they're in unbelief, but now they move to hostility. Like, that's just weird. That's just wrong what you think. So expect it. Something's out of the ordinary. You might be the only person in your friend group who loves Jesus, wants to follow Jesus. So hostility is coming. Unbelief, hostility. But our prayer is they go from hostility to interest. Hmm. All right, that is the only person that I know actually walking this out. That's interesting. And then our prayers, they go from unbelief to hostility to interest to belief. In fact, we see an occasion of that on the cross. Jesus there on the cross, two thieves on either side of him. And the gospel writers tell us at first, both thieves were hurling insults at Jesus. It was a six hour period where Jesus was dying for us on the cross. And sometime during that six hours, one of those guys who had been insulting and was hostile to Jesus, he starts to get interested. That's, a, that's an unusual time to get saved when you're dying on a cross next to the savior. But he goes from hostility to interest to belief. Said something amazing. As Jesus is dying, this is before the resurrection. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus gave that great promise. Truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. I think about my own testimony. I didn't come straight to embracing Jesus. I was an unbelief, an unbelieving church kid. But then I saw my brother in love with Jesus. And first reaction to that was hostility. I didn't like it, thought it was weird, thought it was extreme. And told him so. I said, George, we're all Christians, which we weren't. 
We're all Christians. Do you have to talk about Jesus all the time? I was against what he was doing, but thankfully I had time to watch him. I went from ridicule thinking, I think something's different here. I'm seeing a change in his life and the Lord did the rest to draw me to himself. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is this day of visitation? This is when Jesus comes in mercy to save them. Some say it could refer to the judgment. Either way, we want them coming to Jesus now so that on the day of judgment, they're not condemned, but they're glorifying God on that day. Philippians 2, 14 and 16. Do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So believer, respond to this message today. Tell God that you want to win the fight within as you yield to his Holy Spirit every day. Believer, do that. Ask God to help you to shine brightly in this world, even among the Gentiles, even among the unbelievers, that they might become believers along with you. And that perhaps you're here as a seeker and you've not heard before that you could be forgiven for these things that we've talked about. Oh, today, would you wave the white flag of surrender to the Lord? Would you acknowledge your sin just like the rest of us have done? Would you say, I, I agree, I'm a sinner. I know that you can save me. I want to give you my life. Wash me clean. I understand, Jesus, what you did on the cross to pay for my sins. You were raised from the dead. It's very clear to me that I should trust you. Because here's the good news. Forgiveness is available. Freedom from these sins is available. Jesus will take your shame from you and take the shame and replace it with honor. You'll become a child of God and a child of God forever. Let's pray together.